Our scripture tonight brings us to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 6, as we read verse, verse 1 to chapter 7, verse 2. Uh, two weeks ago, we took a detour away from Israel to see how the ark of God was faring while in Philistine territory. Uh, and the answer was, the ark of the covenant was doing pretty good. Um, we saw that God doesn't need a single Israelite in order to show his superiority over Dagon and over any of the uh, supposed gods of the ancient Near East. In fact, uh, the adventure of the ark hasn't even quite ended just yet. Uh, even though God has made the Philistines thoroughly uncomfortable and even terrified of the ark, tonight we're going to see how the ark gets home. Again, I want you to notice as we read the narrative without any help from the Israelites. And so our reading begins in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty. But by all means, return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done, to us, done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. <clears throat> the men did so. And took the two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice in their image of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. When they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. 
These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they sat down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truth on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Lord, your glory is above all. Your majesty is greater than all. Your grace covers all. Would you give us a taste of your goodness, your holiness, and your wisdom tonight through Jesus Christ? Send your spirit, Lord, as we sang We are absolutely in need of your Holy Spirit, Heavenly Dove, to descend upon us. We are in need of your presence. Without your Spirit tonight, we'll be utterly helpless to understand or to have changed hearts. So would you help us? Would you be our God and our helper, our rock in whom we trust? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't usually lead off my sermons talking about heavy theological issues. I like to ease into them real gently so you barely even notice that I'm talking about theology in my sermon. Uh, But I, I feel like I can't do that tonight because as I'm looking at this narrative, one of the theology terms I don't think I've mentioned in the three plus years that I've been here now, at least from the pulpit, is the term aseity. Um, I did mention it in Sunday school, but not in the church service, I don't think. And aseity is one of the attributes of God, and, and, and the term literally just means from himself. It means God is from himself. The idea here is that God is completely independent. He is self-existent. He doesn't depend on anyone or anything to exist. He doesn't derive his essence. He doesn't derive his nature from anything outside of himself. He lacks nothing, and there is nothing that we can do to complete him or fill him up. There's nothing we can do to fill in the gaps of what God needs because there are no gaps in what God needs. There are no needs. Now, there is an an example of this. A counterexample, actually. And it's a deity who has no aseity whatsoever, no independence whatsoever. And we saw him on display last week. It was Dagon. Dagon is the flip opposite of Yahweh. Because Dagon has no aseity. He has no self-existence. Uh, Dagon is the kind of deity who needed his people to be doting on him at all times. 
Think of what they're doing. They're constantly looking after Dagon. They're setting the statue up every time that it falls over. Dagon needs babysitting. And the Philistines had that very important job. And even they weren't able to really to protect Dagon. By the end of the narrative, what is, what's become of Dagon? His head has been removed. His hands have been broken off. And now the Philistines are afraid to even walk on the threshold of Dagon's temple. And Yahweh is the flip opposite of Dagon. He doesn't even need his people. He, he needs nothing. He requires nothing. Now, it's possible at a certain point, Israel has sort of gotten it into their heads that, they, that Yahweh actually does need them. It's actually possible that it's gotten into their heads that they really are sort of Yahweh's babysitter carrying around the ark, setting up the tabernacle as if he needed those things. And you can imagine after hundreds of years that Israel might begin to persuade themselves that they, God does need those things. But the reality is God is not like Dagon at all. God doesn't need those things. He doesn't need the temple. At any moment, if he wanted to, he could just say, forget this ark, forget this tabernacle. I was doing those things for you so you'd know I was with you. I'm with you, but I don't need those things. I don't dwell in a house, God says, made by human hands. In fact, really by allowing the ark to be taken, what he's doing is he's showing Israel that this is the case. He has a seity. He has his existence of himself. Israel doesn't prop him up. Israel doesn't protect him. They're not his guardians, or as I called them earlier, they are not his babysitters. Tonight, we see how God completely delivers himself from the hands of the Philistines. Part of the way we see this is how the various actors in the narrative respond to the presence of God. And so we see this with weeping in God's presence. We see reverence in God's presence. And then we see rejoicing in God's presence. Um, This is God's own distinct message for Israel tonight. And as he makes sure that his ark, the very symbol of his presence, returns to Israel without any help. It turns out Israel isn't the keeper of Yahweh. Yahweh is the keeper of Israel. And he corrects that misunderstanding for Israel so that they understand the situation very well. First, God shows his self-sufficiency by bringing weeping in God's presence. Um, The presence of God works in an interesting way. On the one hand, the presence of God is a comfort. Um, Think about how over and over in Scripture, God is constantly reminding his people with this sweet comfort. I will be with you. I will be with you. Eleven times. In Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, in Joshua, he says, Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. In Judges, he says, I will be with you and you will strike the Midianites as one man. Why will they strike the Midianites as one man? Because I will be with you. Or think of the book of Kings. Think of Isaiah. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. God comforts the people with those exact words. His presence is meant to be a comfort. And then think of Jesus in John chapter 7. He comforts the people by saying, I will be with you. He invokes God's promise of comfort and he uses it for his people. And so the message for Israel as God's people is that this reality is a blessing. The presence of God is a blessing. It's a pleasant promise. It's a present comfort. Now we know that God is... 
omnipresent. He's, he's in all places at all times. And he's just as much present on Pluto as he is in Alpha Centauri, as he is in this room right here, right now. He is a spirit. He has no spatial limitations. God has boundless existence. And so when we ask God to be with us, or when we seek God's presence, we don't mean that we want God to be physically with us now. We're not talking about physical presence. Because he has, physical pres- he has no physical presence, and he is present everywhere. Try to wrap your head around that. Um, We ask God, in other words, be present with us, be our help right now, be our God right now, meet our needs right now. The same way that Israel needed God, we need him. When we talk about God being present with us, we're asking him to be our God, to be for us. We're asking him to, to care for us. We're asking for his provision And so when we ask for God's care, we're asking for a blessing, not a spatial, physical presence, but something more powerful, his spiritual presence. And that means to have God's presence with you is a very special thing. It means to have his favor. If God is present with you, it means you have his favor. Think of Joshua in Egypt, or sorry, Joseph in Egypt. Joseph is in Egypt, and what does he have? God is with him. What does it mean for God to be with him? He has God's special favor. God's caring for him. God's providing for him. It means to have his favor. It means to have his provision. It means that God is for us in Jesus Christ. And so we should seek God's presence every day, and for believers, the presence of God is a true blessing. That's the one side of the coin when we're talking about the presence of God, that it's a good thing, it's a, it's a blessing, it's a, it's a pleasure to know that God is for us. But what about the unbeliever? What about those who aren't God's people? What does his presence mean for them? Well, we see in a very tangible way tonight what God's presence to unbelievers is, and, it, and the answer is it's unbearable. To be in the presence of God, but not to be his child is agony. For the Philistines. Here they are. They're devoted to Dagon. They're devoted to Baal and all these false gods. They think they can have Yahweh as one of their gods, too, that he's going to join the pantheon. But Yahweh doesn't line up with their ideas of a deity. He isn't contained, he isn't controlled, he isn't bound or dependent on them the way their gods are. And he shows this to them very profoundly by bringing plagues and tumors. To the city where the ark is taken. So for seven straight months, God is showing them in a tangible way, in a physical way, sign after sign of his repeated and constant disfavor. They are in spiritual disfavor. And what is he doing? He's waking them up to his disfavor by showing them in an undeniable way that he is against them. He is present, but the presence of God for the Philistines, is not a blessing. And God does use pain that way. He's waking up the Philistines here. He does use pain like that in our lives too. He uses pain to rouse us. He uses pain to wake us up. Every single tumor and plague that lies upon the land, believe it or not, is of the good design of God because he's showing them how bankrupt worshiping Dagon is 
Um, I've heard it likened to the check engine light on a vehicle, right? Suffering and pain are like the check engine light on a vehicle. They are a reminder that we are living our lives riding in a rickety vehicle that could fall apart at any moment, and we need to be prepared to meet the Lord. That check engine light in your car is a reminder that you have a fallible piece of equipment that could fail you at some point. And pain in our life is like that. It's like that check engine light. And so for the Philistines... They are in pain. The check engine light is on. Something is wrong in their lives. But without faith in him, his presence to them is just a curse. Without a love for Yahweh, without a mediator, his burning holiness is only terrifying to them. It's not as though Israel is is better. It's not like they're a greater people. It's not as though they're more holy than the Philistines in their practices or in their hearts. But Israel can bear to be in the presence of God, at least because of the sacrifices, because of the protections God has given them through his grace. Um, Back in Exodus, the people stood at Mount Sinai and as they received the law, they were so terrified. They begged God. They said, go away. Please go away from us. Even Israel, as sinful as they are, they they can't bear to be in God's presence. Imagine how unbearable God's presence is to unholy people who don't love him, who don't have his favor. Sometimes people talk about hell, theologians especially, talk about hell as as a place that is the absence of God's presence. And, And who knows, maybe you've used that illustration before. There is a sense in which that's true because if God's presence is his favor then and God's presence is his comfort and knowing who he is, then uh, you would think that hell is also a place of the absence of God in the sense that God is no longer for you. He is no longer gracious. He is no longer kind to you because hell will be a place of God's very intimate presence to people who hate him, but it will be an experience of the absence of God as well, in the sense that God will never show kindness or grace to those in hell again. Think of the story Jesus tells of the rich man and Lazarus, how the rich man is being tormented on the other side of the gulf, and Father Abraham is not even willing to bring a drop of water to put in their mouths and give them even a bit of comfort any longer. The idea here is it is unpleasant to think about it, But there is a reminder here that God's presence is unbearable to those who are his enemies. So I think it's best not to think of hell as the absence of God. It's a place to remember the disfavor of God. The Philistines feel this misery in some ways here. Rather than seeing today as the day of salvation, rather than seeing their suffering as an opportunity to repent, rather than throwing down their idols and worshiping Yahweh instead, while he's among them, they would rather drive him out. They would rather send him away because they can't bear his holy presence. Agony in God's presence, suffering in God's presence. This leads to point two tonight, though, which is reverence in God's presence. See, for the Philistine lords, uh, it gets to the point where they say, what shall we do with the ark of Yahweh? They know they need to get rid of this ark, but, but how? They're afraid to even have to be in the same town as this thing. Every time it goes to another city, what happens? There's a riot. People are killed. They can't keep it in their country anymore. But then you have this other problem. Which brave soul is going to carry it back to the Israelite territory and get rid of it? A few months ago, I, I watched the, the miniseries Chernobyl. And 
One of the most terrifying moments in the show was when the men had to go out on the roof of the reactor building. Uh, and on the roof of this reactor building, after the, the uh, uh, reactor exploded, there were these uh, enclosures around these radioactive rods of uranium. And they had exploded. And so because of that, the pieces of the enclosures around them had, had exploded and gone up on the roof. And so you had these pieces of basically what looked like granite. And they were granite. And the granite was so radioactive that they said it was the most dangerous place on the entire planet Earth. And they needed to get these pieces of radioactive material back down, pushed inside the reactor. And so they had a long line of men who came into the reactor building. They ran up onto the roof and they wore these, uh, these suits that were supposed to protect them. And each of them was to run out on the roof for one minute. And for one minute, they were to shovel furiously and push as much of the granite back down into the reactor as they possibly could. And then they were to immediately come back. Because if they stayed any longer, they were already losing years off of their lives just by being in the presence of this radioactive material. And one of the most nerve-wracking scenes, one of the men falls down and just lands on this piece of granite. And all you can think is, he's going to have a very short life because of this. And so everyone's terrified. All of these men are terrified. Using, losing years off of their lives performing this important task. And I sort of imagine in a small way the, the Philistines who moved the ark must have felt the same way. We are handling something holy here. We are handling something that could destroy us. And so they devised this plan. How are we going to return the ark to Israel? They, the plan they, they come up with involves a cart. I won't go into all the detail of their plan, but the short version of it is they decide that they're going to have it pulled by milk cows. Now, maybe you think, why milk cows? Why do they mention the calves? Well, think about it like this. Um, the, The milk cows are nursing mothers, and they have baby calves that they're supposed to be nursing. And every instinct of a mother is, of course, to nurse her child. And so they know that this is supposed to go to Israel if these cows, whose very instinct is to return to them, actually goes away from them back to the Israelite territory. Because these cows, their natural instinct is to come back. What if it doesn't come back? For the, for, for the Philistines, at least, this is the sign that they're doing the right thing, that this is the right way to go about it. Um, so they divide this, this plan also of giving an offering to Yahweh. He has terrified them in a sense, and in a certain way, he has now a certain degree of respect from them. You, you have to notice this. It's not as though they're careless about Yahweh. Now, they're very serious about him, but they're not serious enough to repent. They're not serious enough to get rid of Dagon. They're not serious enough to turn and become his people. But he's terrified them enough that they say, well, we're willing to give up our gold. And so they make these gold tumors and mice. They want to assuage God's anger if they can in their own in their own way. There's sort of a perverse sort of pagan reverence in this passage. Um, Kenneth Chafin writes this. He says, he says, what had happened to their god Dagon, to themselves, and to their land had created a certain fear by making things worse by not observing the proper protocol. So that's sort of the mentality that, the, that these folks have. Now, I would just say this. Notice this. The Philistines are very religious people. And... They have the same impulse that a natural human impulse in religion is. Religious people believe they will be safe and secure if they just do the right things, pray the right prayers, and follow the right protocols. 
God tells Israel repeatedly, I don't want you to do those things. I don't want the right things. I don't want the right prayers. I don't want the right protocols. He says, I want your heart. We were just reading that in Micah this morning in the youth room. We were reading about God says, the thing I want most from you is your heart. I want your love. And you're so fixated on the small details that you miss what I've really called you to do. What have you called me to do? To love me. And so what do they do though? They settle for honoring him with routine and ceremony. They have no love for Yahweh. They just want him out of their presence. They want to get God off their back. They don't want to feel judged anymore. And many times we can fall into that. We can find security in all sorts of proper protocols, sound theology, biblical worship practices, and yet we can have all of those things and have hearts that are far, far away from God. The plan of the Philistines works, but it works in spite of their man-made aspects of their plan. God is gracious to them, and he's gracious to them by removing his presence represented by the ark. And that's the second point here. Now, the third this evening is rejoicing in God's presence. Rejoicing in God's presence. The Ark of the Covenant leaves the Philistine territory on the cart. It, their plan works. It ends up in the field of Joshua and Beth Shemesh. And do you see what verse 13 tells us? The, the reaction of the people. It says the people were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the cart, they rejoiced to see it. They rejoiced. And they immediately offered the cows as a burnt offering to Yahweh. What a beautiful moment it would be to be the people of Beth Shemesh and to to not only see the ark coming into the field of Joshua, and not only that, but then to see this sort of humorously see this attachment of scouts just sort of watching over the ridge, watching from a distance and making sure the ark gets to where it's supposed to go and making sure especially that it is not in their territory anymore. Um, and I just sort of imagine sort of the little Philistine heads peeking over the hill. And once it goes into the field and stops, they just go and then just like sneak away, you know. Um, it's just sort of satisfying to see that, you know. It's sort of like now Yahweh is your problem is sort of the Philistine's mindset. Well, Israel doesn't see God that way. They, the text tells us they rejoiced. The text tells us they rejoiced. They didn't, they don't miss the message, by the way. This moment, seeing the ark return would be loaded with meaning. Wow, Yahweh doesn't need our help. He's here for us. We're not here for him. The message is incredibly powerful. Just seeing that cart coming your way and thinking, we didn't have to do anything to make this happen. It's a very gospel moment. We contributed nothing to this glorious moment. And he's here for us. We're not here for him I just love this. I hope you do too. God returns from behind enemy lines. He does it without Israel's help whatsoever. He returns triumphant from battle with the gods. And he even comes home with booty. Right? He has come home with all sorts of victories. uh, Festooned with gold. Now, even though the, the presence of God is a blessing, God still shows his holiness to Israel as well. They may be very tempted in this moment to be loose. In fact, it seems like they have been. In verse 19, it says, God struck some of the men because they looked upon the ark of Yahweh. 
In other words, it's not just that they set their eyes on it. That's not, that's not the sin. The sin isn't that they glanced and noticed it and anyone who saw it made them, made them sick or, 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 or struck them down. The reality is they treated the Ark of the Covenant like a tourist attraction. Uh, they disrespected the Ark. They treated it like an object to be oogled. You can understand it's been seven months. Very likely these people have never seen the Ark before. And then look what happens. It says, the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? It sounds very much like what the Philistines said when they decided, what are we going to do with the ark of God? So in a sense, even Israel, as God arrives on the scene back in Israel, it's not as though God wants them to know this is not a sign of approval. Just because the ark has come back doesn't mean that you guys are great. Um, They're very humbled in this moment. Just because they have God's presence doesn't mean that he doesn't demand anything of them. Just because God is with them doesn't mean it doesn't matter what they do. Even to to his own people, he says, like he did with Nadab and Abihu, the priests that took Yahweh for granted, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all people, I will be glorified. He gives this message, the same message to the people of Beth Shemesh. It's a reverent attitude God sets when he returns. There is rejoicing, but he is careful to make sure that it isn't a party. This is not a rock concert. He says, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Now, there is one aspect to this I, I want you to see as we draw near the end. In this instance, God allows himself to be taken by his enemies. He allows the symbol of his presence to go into enemy territory where he terrorizes them until they release him. And in this case, he goes free as is only right. And in doing this, he is showing his superiority over them. But about a thousand years later, something very different would happen. And the person of Jesus, he would again tell Israel, I will be with you in John 7. And he would again fall into the hands of his enemies. Now, in this case, not the Philistines, but the Romans and the Jewish leaders. He would be taken into the enemy barracks, humiliated paraded before them, not unlike what happened in the temple of Dagon. Except this time he wouldn't go free. This time he allowed himself to be humiliated, to be spit upon, to be despised, to be rejected. This time, rather than showing his strength by terrorizing his enemies, he would show his strength by allowing himself to be terrorized by his enemies. Rather than cows being slaughtered, he would allow himself to be slaughtered. Rather than bulls and goats, his own blood would be shed so that you and I would go free. This is what the presence of God really means. It means to have God for us. And there is no fuller expression of God's presence than Jesus Christ. And our passage tonight, God at once shows us his holiness. He shows us his aseity. He shows us his independence. He shows us that he allows us to live in his world, but he doesn't need us. And of course, he shows us that in the presence of God, there is rejoicing as well. Let's pray. Our Father, if we have become irreverent before you, forgive us. If we've become cavalier about your holiness, 
Forgive us. If we have become careless or forgotten who you are, Lord, forgive us for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Let's remember the holiness of God this evening.